Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We're here today on Crew Call with filmmaker Bill Polad. He's the director of the film Dreamin' Wild, starring Casey Affleck and Zoe Deschanel in theaters now. Bill, welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. Take us back to what what got you into the filmmaking bug? Take us back to the movie Explorers. Old Explorers? Well, that's a long time ago. Um, but I've always wanted to be, you know, in the movie business, kind of grew up watching movies and wanted to, you know, like it, it changed me in so many different ways and taught me about life that I want, wanted to do that for other people, like have those kind of emotional epiphanies and things like that. Um, really love that dynamic and process and, and uh, wanted to do that too. So I started off as a writer, uh, writing kind of scripts in my spare time uh, without really knowing what I was doing. Um, but eventually I met a couple of guys in Minneapolis who wanted to do the same thing, try to do mini, uh movies out of Minneapolis, um, which seems kind of crazy, but uh, we did that and we uh, made a film called Old Explorers. Um, so that's what got it, got it started, to be honest. And then after that, you began producing. Yep. Tell us, tell us about that because, you know, a lot of um, early, the, the early part of the millennium's great Art House Cinema, you know, you've beh- been behind these movies like Brokeback Mountain and Into the Wild. How did that tell us about going down? And, and of course, the Best Picture winner, uh, 12, uh, 12 Years a Slave. But tell us about going down that route of producing yeah. uh, before turning back to filmmaking again. Yeah. So, I mean, when I made Old Explorers, that first movie a long time ago, you know, I raised money from family and friends um, and we didn't get the money back, you know, so I felt very guilty about that and bad about that. And and I really didn't want to do that again. Uh, so I spent 10 years doing commercial and documentary films. Um, but then eventually I wanted to get back into features. And and so I engaged with Hollywood again and uh, put my director's aspirations on the side uh in the background and uh you know just started producing um and and again in this situation i think i don't know if it's a typical situation but you know if you go out to hollywood and get engaged with the movie business um it all depends on who you, who you meet um and if you meet good people that it's great and and if you meet bad it's not so great i was lucky enough to meet really good people and, you know, got hooked up in a series of projects that were great, you know, um, focus features and things like that. People like that. Um, I just was lucky in who I met. So. 
Well, you met great filmmakers, Ang Lee, yeah. Terrence Malick, Steve McQueen. Can you tell me some of the takeaways from working with this great bunch? Uh, I mean, I got to imagine Malick alone is, you know, given the, the unique way that he works, he finds the film in the editing room and he has this wonderful, I, you know, having spoken to people that have worked with him, he has this wonderful knack of, you know, eh, we're not going to do the shot list today. Let's go run and shoot that butterfly. Yeah. Can you can you talk about some of the takeaways, like some of the key lessons that you you took with you from working with these guys? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing for me anyway was that I, you know, only wanted to do movies that I believed in, that I truly believed were going to be not successful, but artistically, you know, meaningful to me and hopefully artistically and financially meaningful for other people. But that's that was kind of the main premise for me. So I turned down a lot of things and said no to various projects because I really didn't want to spend my time or or risk my time and money, um, you know, doing those kind of movies. So that led me to, you know, the better projects, I guess. You know, to have that discipline, that would be important. Um, so, you know, when you jump over to Terry, Terry Malik, Terrence Malik, I should say, but I mean, we've become close friends over the years. And, and you know, I when people ask me at the beginning, what kind of movies do you want to make and who do you want to make them with? Uh, to be honest, I didn't have a list. I was not aspirational in the way oh, I, I, you know, I'm a fan of this guy or that guy. or um, uh, So it really wasn't like that. I just, I hate to say stumbled across, but I did meet Terrence Malick um, in the early days when he was trying to do a film called Shay, which ultimately was made with Steven Soderbergh. Um, but that's when we met and we became good friends through the process. And over the years, he would tell me or describe different stories to me in different projects. Um, and we ultimately did Tree of Life um, together. Um, yes, so, so the things I've learned from Terrence Malick, um, you know, has, they've been amazing. And, and obviously, I don't, you know, try to act like Terry, either, because, you know, you just want to be yourself, you need to be um, true to yourself. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of more important to me and the relationship that's underlying than and it is to gravitate or jump on the project because somebody XYZ is doing it or something, so. So roughly 14 years later, Love and Mercy, the script for Love and Mercy comes to you. What made you wanna jump on that Brian Wilson project to direct? like? Why Why was that film, why Why did that mark your return to directing? Yeah, I guess I felt like at that point I had proved myself enough in uh, in producing it to be able to come out, so to speak, come out and let the world know that I wanted to direct again. Um, and obviously I was looking around for different things, working on different things. Uh, but then uh, some people came into the office to talk about the Brian Wilson project, Love and Mercy. Um, and, you know, 
they wanted to know if we would help them out on it. I said, no, um, but if, if this doesn't work out for you guys, bring it back to me because the idea is really intriguing to me. Um, so that's what happened. They ultimately came back, uh, you know, not getting, be able to get the movie made. Um, so they came back and, and uh, we took it over and, uh, you know, started looking for a writer. Um, ultimately landed on Oren Moverman, um, who was the ultimate writer on the thing. And to be honest, uh, through the process of meeting him and working with him, he was the one who convinced me that I should direct it because, you know, he knew by that time what my sensibility was and what my vision was. And and he really urged me to do it. So, <laughs> yeah. Had Brian, had Brian, Brian Wilson, had he been wanting to make this movie for some time? Well, I mean, it's this- one of those things when, when it's based on a, real person the people aren't always convinced that they i mean it sometimes sounds like a great idea of uh, a movie being made about your life but you know they're also a little bit mixed on whether they actually want it to be made because you know it takes a lot of trust to give your you know story over to a, a filmmaker whoever it may be and i don't know that he had come to that point of really buying off on it or and trusting anybody. And and then ultimately we got to that point with, you know, he and I. So was was that was there did you have to persuade him, hey, I'm the guy? Uh I don't know. I mean, it seems to me that we worked on the you know script more. And then presented to him and Melinda, obviously she, Melinda, his wife is, is a big part of the decision-making. Um, so I think it was really just the script and the combination of that and me, you know, getting to know me a little bit better and that he would have that trust or they would have that trust. So along comes this New York Times article by Stephen Karutz about the Emerson brothers. Was that your first window into these guys and their and their rebound and their kind of all of a sudden here they are, 1970s young songwriters at that time. And then all of a sudden in 2008, their album gets discovered by a record collector who begins passionately tub thumping for them and they be they get on a record executive's radar. Tell me about that. Um, was that was that your first window, that article, or had you known about these? Yeah, guys? it was really that article. I mean, uh, honestly, a, a friend of mine, Jim Burke, who's a producer on the movie, um, brought the project to me, pitched it to me as a director. And uh, when he told me the story, I said, no. I said, basically, because it sounded a lot like search, Searching for Sugar Man, the documentary. Um and, you know, I thought they had done a great job with that film and I really didn't want to do something over again or, you know, the same idea. Um, but he insisted, Jim insisted that I read the article and, and actually Stephen Kurtz's extended article about uh, about the, the, the Emerson brothers. And so I did that and then I listened to the music and obviously <laughs> drew me in a, a lot. But really, it wasn't until going to Spokane and meeting 
the real Emersons, Joe and Donnie, that I was really captivated you know, by, by it. I mean, it was really about the people, um, certainly Joe and Donnie, but also the family, the extended family, uh, certainly the father and mother and, and, you know, so that was what really brought me into it. Now, their fa- at the time that the father built the studio for them, um, he was going into arrears on the farm. Did did their success, did their late success wind up helping him in the end? Uh, it did help them. He took a gamble on them. It did help them. They, they, they got some money back, but not a great deal. It wasn't a, a windfall for them, for sure. So... By the time I got involved and was meeting with them and the prospect of a movie, you kind of see maybe that this will be a second uh, bump for them, which would be great. Because, I mean, by that time, I really was connected with the family and really knew them and wanted to see the best for them. What struck you? Was it apparent that, look, obviously the jumping off point is this kind of late success that they had um an aerial pink covering their song baby and turning that into a hit but was it was it apparent to you when you met them this kind of you know the movie deals with kind of the late success that 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 donnie has and the friction of that was that there yeah, I mean, you know, that was somewhat there in Stephen's article or, you know, story. Um, but then that first time that I met Donnie, and actually he picked us up at the airport and drove us out to the farm. Um, and on the way back in the middle of the night, I was sitting next to him and uh, he's just talking as he's driving and he bursts into tears. Like he had this great emotional, you know, motion pent up in him and that's really what did it for me it's like wow this guy is so vulnerable um and so raw and so authentic that that's really what did it for me so well i was gonna say you know you know casey affleck you know there's this shot that you have of him very early on in the film uh where chris messina as as comes in and is telling and is gushing over the album and the complexity and this is very early on in the film you hang this shot on casey and it shows the complexity of his emotions he runs through a series of in his face humility unwant scrutiny it's just great thank you which leads me to why why casey i mean yes casey for the role but how how did you decide that he was right? Well, I just, um, you know, I had gotten to know Donnie quite a bit by that point. And he is that kind of guy. Somebody can shift. He's like a regular guy, but then can suddenly shift into this, like he's in another world or something like that. Slightly disconnected, slightly in another place and time. Um, and I just thought that Casey has that ability to do that kind of shift from one kind of being to another. Um, So that was really what did it for me, the ability. Well, he's a great actor, obviously, 
you've seen him in a lot of fantastic roles. Um, but it was that quality that really got me interested in Casey. And ultimately, he agreed to do it. Uh, to be honest, also, he didn't agree to do it until he actually went and met with Donnie, which is, you know, kind of cool. He went to Donnie's house unannounced um, and just showed up as Casey Affleck, you know, uh, and he pitched a tent in Donnie's backyard and <laughs> was there for 48 hours. But it was, you know, very impressive for Casey as well as, as for Donnie. So it was a cool episode. Now, did did you shoot this during COVID or were did yeah, you the, shoot the movie before? On the tail end of COVID, um, we obviously went through all the protocols. But in the Pacific Northwest at that point, there was not, you know, there was not a resurgence or anything like that. So we were, and we went through all the protocols, but it was all okay. We never had an incident at all. Um, we didn't, weren't shut down for any reason. Um, so we were lucky. You produced some excellent, you know, award-winning, you know, specialty cinema. What is your feeling about the sector right now? Uh, uh, the theatrical sector, because, you know, we've bounced back tremendously with tent poles and it looks like there is some hope for art house, but I was just curious because you're in a unique position as a producer. You have to be agnostic. You have to make the best deal. You know, yes, everybody wants to go theatrical, but sometimes you have to go streaming. It just, it's just the nature of the business. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could talk about that, but also, you know, your feelings about the theatrical sector for these smaller films? Well, I mean, obviously I'm still hopeful or we wouldn't be doing it. I mean, we, and that the sector is still viable. Um, people go back to the theaters and, and uh, you know, be as adventurous as they were, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, right now, I suppose people aren't as you know, apt to come out and take a chance on the movie. You know, to be honest, that's the main problem we have is getting people to see the movie. And, and you know, it doesn't help, obviously, that there's the SAG strike. And so Casey and, and Zoe and different people can't really promote it. So that's not helping. Any way that we can get the word out um, will be good, which is the same thing that everybody's trying for, even if you're Barbie. But, you know, they've Obviously, oh, they're okay in getting the word out. But for a film like Dream and Wild, you just need to get people in the seats, um, or at least people in the seats who will talk about it um, and spread the word. You know, because you just can't do it again, particularly with the actors being not in the spotlight at the moment. Um, really hard to get people's attention. When both of these strikes whenever that may be, do you have any projects in the hopper that are ready to go? Yeah. Yeah. To we, go shooting. We do. I mean, uh, we have uh, a script that we're very happy that I'm happy with and that we look forward to going forward on, but you know, it still needs, it, we had a good enough script before the strike and we gave notes on it. So then you ultimately have to wait until the strike's over to execute on those notes and uh, put the, but hopefully we can put some of the pieces together on the film before that in anticipation of the strike being over. So, Bill, you have a film in the fall film festivals 
uh, this year called Fry Bread Face and Me. If you could tell us more about that and its impact on the Native American community. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love the script and, and obviously a really low budget film, a very indie kind of uh, filmmaker. And he did a great job. And um, I love the film. Uh, what else can I say about it? Um, uh, I guess it's unlikely or it's unlikely that we would have gotten involved in it. But it is so captivating in the script that I, you know, we all kind of jumped on board with it and are proud of it, very proud of it. So, The other question I wanted to ask you is, you know, we're coming on the 100 days of the WGA strike. And I was curious, as both a writer and producer, how how that um, how you're reflecting on that. Are there are there certain issues that for feature film writers uh, should be addressed that haven't been addressed. Uh, I'm just, I'm just curious. We're, we're reflecting on the, the 100 days here. Yeah, no, I mean, it's tough I, as all strikes are. Obviously if you're in that kind of dispute, there's arguments on both sides, but I really do think that the, the writers have an argument and, and we should be, kind of uh, getting some more traction in some of those areas. Um, and, you know, hopefully it will work out. But uh, it's obviously right now it's not, you know, most promising. And ultimately, everybody just wants to make movies. But it, clearly it's important that, that we all kind of stick with it and, um, you know, get some, some agreement that works for both of us, for all sides. So, Bill Polat, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.